one of the things that Iranian women have been very upset about is that Western feminists have never really supported them. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Leila Darabi. This week, we spoke to Golnush Niknajad and asked, how are the protests in Iran using media and imagery? Leila, are you binging or cringing for our special episode this week? Well, I think this is a continuation. I continue to binge uh, whether or not I have a choice all content coming out of Iran. Uh, My dad walks uh, two miles to my house from his apartment in Brooklyn to my apartment in Brooklyn at least twice a week, immediately takes the remote and goes to the latest news on YouTube and says, shall we watch the revolution as though the revolution is a TV show we watch from afar? All channels of all text and social media of mine are inundated with information, but I wanted to share one thing that I've watched on repeat, which is a song called Baraya, which means because... Uh, that has gotten a lot of media attention. We will play a clip now and we can link to it in the show notes, but it is a really beautiful piece of, I think, curated songwriting by an artist called Shervin Hajipur, who asked people on Twitter, why are you protesting? And pieced together the lyrics of a song with lyric after lyric beginning because. Because of or for, who are you protesting for? So for freedom and dancing in the streets, for my sister, for your sister, for our sisters, for a normal life, for the future we won't see. And I highly recommend that people not just listen to the song, but seek out a video that has the original tweets and subtitles because you can see that these are all real tweets that the artist has organized into a refrain. And of course, the chorus is Zan Zendigi Azadi, which is a women life freedom. And it's, it's so beautiful. It's just this side of corny because of how real things are in Iran right now. So I've I've really been binging it and I recommend that you do too. Oh my gosh. So amazing. Yeah. When you sent this to me, I I hadn't seen it and it really is emotional. I'm also going to be binging this week, Layla, because why not? It's our show. We can do whatever we want. And I don't know if folks saw that the MacArthur Foundation announced their 2022 Genius Grant winners this week. And I was delighted to see that friend of the show, Loretta Ross, was among this year's winners. Of course, Loretta Ross is one of the mothers of the reproductive justice movement. But more recently, she has been focused on sharing tactics and tools to call in as opposed to call out. And I actually attended one of her calling in workshops. I spent four hours on Zoom on a Saturday afternoon. You know what? I'm not even trying to brag, but I did do that with Loretta and an amazing group of people. And to just really sit and think about what are the standards that we bring to spaces that are explicitly activist oriented and how do we really do the deeper work to treat each other well even as we're trying to do you know quote unquote external work around social change so i just don't see these 
kinds of figures often get roses in their lifetime. And I'm so happy to see Loretta get her roses. There's a lot of other amazing folks. So I'm just binging that whole list. I encourage you to go check it out, read their stories, hear some of the challenges that they've gone through in their lives as well. And just just get you some of that content. It's really inspiring. And it does give a little bit of hope. Completely inspiring. I just love reading the term reproductive justice on a list of uh, genius fellows. Absolutely. We're gathered here today for a special episode of Cringe Watchers because of uh, other warriors or, or justice advocates who are inspiring us. And that's the youth movement that is growing out of Iran. I know we've talked about this before on the show. We decided to dedicate an entire episode to this topic because there are so many links, but one of the strongest and maybe only links I've been seeing in the media is feminism or women's movement. There's been a lot of media attention put on the fact that women and girls are in the streets. Women and girls are taking off their veils. And uh, we wanted to get into a more nuanced conversation about that. Absolutely. And Layla, I don't say it enough, but I really appreciate your lens as an Iranian, as a feminist, as someone who is both within and looking at these different worlds. And so I feel really grateful that I get to be your podcast co-host and have conversations like the one that we had. That's incredibly flattering, Lori, and I feel the same way about the lens you bring to this podcast. I'm also feel extremely lucky that my friend Volnoush was able to join us today. We met in journalism school because people told me there was another Iranian American student. <laughs> and we tend to find our people when there aren't that many of us in those settings. And uh, shortly after we did our master's program, Volnoush recognized there was no mainstream or any nuanced coverage of what was going on in Iran in mainstream media. And she decided to start her own digital platform of Tehran Bureau, which is a website that was originally housed within PBS Frontline on their website. That documentary TV show had a web-based platform and then later was housed at The Guardian and is currently independent and pursuing more of a data journalism piece. And because uh, I was based in New York in 2009, when the green movement and, and a lot of protests bubbled up in Iran at that point, I became connected to Tehran Bureau as their official New York correspondent. And so I covered a lot of cultural events and I covered a lot of protests of Iranians in the diaspora following what was going on in Iran, the way they're following today. I did so little for that website, but because I signed my articles today, you can Google me and I'll be associated with Tehran Bureau. I probably wrote five, 10 articles for that site over the course of its existence. It was also my first connection to Jason Rosayan, who's a famous Iranian American reporter who has an incredible memoir out right now about being based in Iran and going to prison for his incredible reporting. And so I've always felt imposter syndrome and guilt for being, you know, Googleable in collection to reporters like Jason, and also incredibly grateful for the vision that Golnoush had to say, if I don't see my country or the issues I want to see in the news, I'm just going to become the news. I'm going to make the news. And it was really bittersweet to have to call her up for this reason, but I'm so glad that we caught her in London her first day back after a long trip and got her to go deep with us on the images coming out of Iran. So without further ado, I hope folks enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome, Golnush. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, especially on such late notice. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
I'm very excited to talk to you about what is going on in Iran because I feel as though, you know, although we met in journalism school, I think our friendship really bonded around the last time something exciting was happening in Iran in 2009. And I thought just to set the context, we could kick things off with you just explaining a little bit what Tehran Bureau is, because my understanding, having been minimally involved in this incredible digital platform that you've built, is that Tehran Bureau is named Tehran Bureau because there are not a lot of news bureaus in Iran, and the information coming out of Iran is very limited, as we see now. Just to set the stage, I want to hear from you what you were setting out to do when you created that platform before we get into all the exciting things that are happening in Iran today. Yeah, I fell in love with journalism after I became an attorney. And when 9-11 happened, I became very interested in covering Iran. And it was difficult to do unless I went back to Iran. And I knew that by going back to Iran, I would have to compromise my reporting, which to me is like, what's the point of being a reporter if you can't do real reporting? And so I thought that one of the important trends in journalism with specialization, because unless you were really knew a complex topic, you weren't in a position to do it. And I wanted a, a lot of people to contribute their voices and their backgrounds and their journalism to giving a more complex, nuanced picture of Iran. At some point, I was trying to help ABC at that time, you know, get a bureau in Iran, and they wouldn't let that happen. And with the kind of um, short golden age of the internet where it just kind of stood for opening up opportunities and windows into Iran. I thought, okay, why not make it a virtual bureau? And so, yeah, I launched it from Newton, Massachusetts, right before the 2008 election of Obama. And it just kind of went from there. And it's been an incredible journey to watch. So as you know, our show Cringe Watchers usually follows in a much more lighthearted way, one episode of binge-worthy television. And uh, we use scenes from TV to really frame our conversation. Today, we wanted to focus on the movement that's growing out of Iran and to get your perspective. And so I thought that to frame our conversation, we could look at some of the, the visual moments that have emerged from Iran in the, in the past few weeks. And I think there's no other place to start than the images of Masa Amini being carted away and becoming a symbol of martyrdom. Why did this moment have the spark that it did? It always helps when something is captured on video. And I think Iranian journalists inside Iran played a huge role in um, following up the story by going to the hospital and taking you know, a photograph of Masa Amini in her comatose state. It's interesting because right before this happened, we had um, someone go to Iran, and I was listening in as he was telling my mom about how great everything is in Tehran, and no one's wearing their hijab properly. They let it kind of slip down on their shoulders. Everything's fine. Everything's great. And I was sitting in a corner seething, saying, yes, that's North Tehran, and there's no greater symbol, no more important symbol of what, you know, quote unquote, the Islamic Republic is and women being veiled. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that she was from the Kurdistan region of Iran. In my experience, they're very kind of prejudiced. They gauge how much agency they think someone has before they, you know, decide to beat the living hell out of someone. But this time they got um, caught red handed. And I think the phenomenon around this whole new movement, revolution, protests, 
which is kind of very fluid and constantly changing. No one had really focused on Generation Z, the Zoomers, and most of the protesters, the bravest people we see are kids. Sadly, they're kids, you know. They're um, really, really young women, girls, children, and men who are standing beside them. And so I think part of it is that they didn't grow up with um, kind of the propaganda, the narratives that media built around this reformist faction of government that was going to help reform the Islamic Republic and do all kinds of great things. Um, incidentally, it was the coverage of the um, reformists that got me interested in, in Tehran Bureau in the first place because I didn't think that, you know, having lived there before, during, and after the revolution, I was like, I don't think reformists can come out of this foundation. So yeah, they didn't grow up with that. And generations before had grown up with the promise of Hatami. And 2009 was about you know, reform, and it was getting back their votes, and making changes, having their votes count, and all that. And you know, there was a lot of religious um, terminology in the slogans that were used in 2009. Today, we don't see any of that. We don't hear any of that. We don't hear Allahu Akbar. We don't hear Yo Hossein, this, that. It's all very um, secular. And the other fascinating thing about it is that up until now, everyone has always said that it's about economics in Iran. It's about e economics. But again, all the slogans are around freedom and liberty and equal rights and just kind of, you know, a chance to live normal lives. So. It's fascinating. One of the things I was really struck by looking at the, the video footage of Massa is that it's women and men running up to her. And I think when you hear the term morality police and you read it in the news, you're picturing, I think, men. And so I would love to hear your definition of who are the morality police. They go around um, looking for, you know, women who they believe don't have their hijab on right and they can do whatever they want with them. One of the reasons why it's so confusing to people is because you see so many women that are um, not always wearing their hijab in a proper way and nothing happens to them. It's kind of like swimming at the Cape with the sharks. You know, it's like a lot of times you're going to get in and nothing's going to happen, you know, but if the shark comes, it can be a pretty fatal attack, if, if that makes sense. So the way I understand it is that you know when the revolution happened in the 1980s, it was uh, much easier for them to control the population. But as the population of young people exploded over the past you know 43 years, they couldn't control everybody. So every once in a while, they have to make a show of things. And um, one of the great strengths they have is that they always arbitrarily impose their regulations or their laws. And you know, a lot of their own children, the children of clerics and sepahis, you know, they don't wear the hijab, they have bikini parties, they have all kinds of things going on and they have this kind of immunity. If you guys have seen the film um, Tehran, I think it's an Israeli production. The TV on, show. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have scenes where you know, like these kids that are part of this political faction that 
is part of the ruling establishment and they can get away with a lot of things, which is not very fictional. Um, and there's also the French series, The Bureau. Have you guys seen that? Yes. yes. I was just going to say, I think The Bureau's representation of Iran is, is incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Well, I shouldn't say fun. <laughs> Layla has um, recommended The Bureau to me uh, about 80 times, Skolnish. So um, you all are in the same company there. But a, a lot of the things that you're saying are really pointing to some global trends around protests. And I think especially the role that um, media played in inspiring the particular moment that we're in feels really important. Can you share with our audience who may be a little bit less familiar more about the media landscape and how unique is it to have something like this caught on video where you actually see Masa being thrown into a van and carted away? This goes viral. You know, is this something that might be happening more than people think. What sort of made this different and what role did media play in that? Um, I think one, they got caught. It's the fact that media in Iran actually had two you know, women reporters who got themselves there and kind of pursued the story. I think um, that was big. I just put up a tweet of these protests against the hijab after the revolution. This is still within one year after the victory of the revolution. and. There's all these um, bareheaded women saying, you know, we fought for the revolution. Why are we forced to wear the hijab? And it was a massive demonstration that was put down, but a French documentary filmmaker had a lot of footage and they filmed it. And over the past 40 years, anytime anybody wanted to say that, oh no, no, it was a religious revolution. Oh no, people wanted to wear the hijab in solidarity with, you know, the religious women. You see this video and you're like, mm. this, you know, of course, social media is just kind of a bigger part of that, except that since everybody has videos, information, tweets, blah, blah, links, it's hard to kind of get the attention of anyone because we're just blitzed with so much um, information, images and videos. In 1999, there was protests and smartphones and video weren't around then. So we didn't really get to hear about what happened because it was probably just covered in a few articles. It's interesting to follow the Western news right now, because if you look across channels or across, you know, YouTube clips, which is how I watch the news without cable, you see sort of the same image over and over again. For example, I've seen the same image of a bunch of schoolgirls taking off their hijab and, and jumping around across many channels. There are really powerful visual clips coming out of Iran. It's interesting because I think what really helped in 2009 was the fact that CNN devoted a whole team to, um, you know, parsing through these videos and kind of amplifying them. I remember when Obama didn't say anything and stayed quiet, one of my correspondents in Tehran called and said, what's wrong with Obama? Why doesn't he say anything? And I'm like, do you want him to say something? I mean, she was kind of like frozen, didn't know what to say because it wasn't the politically correct thing to say that we want the attention, we want the support of the West because it was a taboo then to say that, yeah, we want that. And the minute that Michael Jackson died, the Iran desk caught, kind of put away at CNN and those images were no longer being amplified. Yes, you know, it's very fortuitous that um, we have all these videos and the fact that just one documentary maker made 
this great documentary about the anti-hijab protests in Iran in 1979. I think those things were vital, you know. You're sort of reminding me of that media truism that they need content. And you're also making me worry that Kanye West is going to take this out of the spotlight or another celebrity death. I never thought about Michael Jackson's death and the, the geopolitical implications of that. But that is how our news cycle works these days, isn't it? It is, unfortunately. Television, you know, and press, the printed uh, newspapers, whatever, the fact that um, their correspondents have always been focused on access to the politicians and the countries and the places they want to cover, they don't give you the full story because their focus is access. That's how, you know, you get to be a foreign correspondent. You have to have access. I wonder if it also is part of the reason why the narrative in the West does get so convoluted. You know, I think there's a lot of people who kind of just want to focus in on, well, this is about the veil or this is a women-led protest and and then project their own narrative onto that. So, you know, of course, the Western feminists want to say, see, you know, they're fighting for their liberation in just the way that I knew that they should be or would be, or the veil just seems like such a specific thing that they can point to. Do you feel like the truth of the protests is more complicated than that? And, you know, I've I've seen framing around bodily autonomy. What would you say is at the center of the demands and, and how has the West maybe understood that or misunderstood that? I think it's how much rage and fury there is against the Islamic Republic. They have been committing crimes for decades. They have so many victims. They have so many families of victims. And all of this has just kind of um, built up into this keg that just blew up. One of the things that Iranian women have been very upset about is that Western feminists have never really supported them. There are those that are finally falling into line and um, giving lip service the fact they stand in solidarity with the Iranian women who want their rights. But obviously, it's a lot more about that. But one of the issues that has always been downplayed is that hijab is just a minor inconvenience for women in Iran. And the fact that um, a lot of um, so-called progressives have um, kind of coalesced around the hijab as you know a positive thing. And they haven't allowed us to speak about our experience of trauma with the hijab has actually fueled the fire you know so it's one thing not to be able to kind of not to be suppressed and um kind of put down and shut up in iran but also to not be able to then kind of stand at a safer distance and be able to talk about it this has fueled a lot of the fire and In my experience, most Iranian women do really kind of abhor the hijab. And because it comes at such a conflict with the progressive narrative in the West, we haven't really gotten that kind of um, support from feminists. Yeah, I think it's so complicated. I mean, having lived in France, where they have such a different view of feminism 
And, and I think that there's a lot of progressive feminism that comes from fighting the veil bans and, and other dress code bans in the opposite direction in Europe. And, and all of those bans come from such a far right extremist anti-immigration standpoint. It doesn't allow a lot of space in either direction. Like it's very hard to, to talk about the trauma of forced veiling in Iran without nuanced conversation to make sure that people who choose to wear or to choose to represent their, their Muslimhood are able to without feeling thrown out with the bathwater. It's hard to push back against forced dress codes in the European sense of not allowing someone to enter a school to fetch their child if they're wearing a veil. It's a very polarizing symbol. It has become such a shorthand for West versus Orient in terms of feminism. And and people have very black and white views around uh, what is feminist, to wear a veil, to not wear a veil, to have a dress code. It's simplistic. Can I say something completely politically incorrect? Please. Is that okay? Yeah, it's good content. Good tape. Sometimes the world has a way of putting the truth back on course. This is the way I see it. And of course, it's coming from the perspective of someone who has been traumatized by the hijab. And it's a trigger for me. You know, all these years later, it's still a trigger for me. I was talking to one of our former correspondents in Tehran, and she said, maybe this is like the first time the women who were not allowed to talk about you know, hijab, is this really a choice? Are they doing it, it as identity politics? Are they doing it to attract more attention to themselves? The hijab is, my, in my understanding, supposed to be about modesty. I don't see that with a lot of, like, I see it more as a way to attract attention to what they're doing. Like Ilhan Omar, I think I was looking at Vogue and she was saying how beautiful it made her feel. It's just always baffling to me. And I feel like this was the first time that women who have not been able able to speak about whether this is truly a choice and okay, this large population of Iranians have been experimenting with it and they're willing to die to take it off. So how um, feminine and holy does that make them feel? I don't know if this is something you should censor or not, but... What I'm hearing from you is, I think, something that we talk about all the time, which is it boils down to choice and bodily autonomy. It's a square of cloth until somebody imbues it with meaning. And if the meaning for you is that someone is forcing you to do something, then I can see how you're not going to see any beauty in it. I want to talk about that frame a little bit, the frame of bodily autonomy for these protests, because on the one hand, it is this really kind of unifying, justice-oriented lens that I think is interesting. And it does a lot of work as a term. But on the other hand, I wonder if it's almost so broad, do, do people really understand what it means? In another context, bodily autonomy would be very much understood to be closely connected to pro-abortion rights stance. You know, Galnoush, I don't know if you think that's part of what's being discussed or widely understood to be part of what's at stake in these protests, but I haven't really gotten that understanding. You know, the other thing that the framing of bodily autonomy makes me think about is the ways in which oftentimes there's uh, some kind of false distinction made between a feminist protest and another kind of protest that might be quote unquote economically oriented. These protests are being depicted as different because they're women led, because they're centering like a gender justice issue, talking about the veil. But 
they are also, I think, very much being driven by the same issues that a lot of global protests are driven by, which is anger at the regime, right? Anger at the current political landscape. And I just wonder why that part is so important to be erased. Why can't we also name it a feminist protest while keeping that part intact? Because this much anger doesn't come out of, you know, two or three years of wearing the veil. The experience of Iranian women with hijab has been very um, oppressive. It's symbolic of everything, all the crimes this regime has committed. If you listen to the slogans, so much of it is death to Khamenei, you know, death to the Islamic Republic, death to the dictator, I think. That's one of the things that I found most striking. My entire life, I've lived in the U.S. looking towards Iran as a place where, you know, we can't live because there's a repressive government. And all of the imagery that has come out has literally been black and white. All of the things that people are wearing are black and white. It's very dark. It's very dour. Huge eyebrows, huge black turbans, scowls and beards. This intense imagery that feels generations removed, even more removed than my parents' generation. It, it feels ancient and, and so, so, so depressing. And what's been, I think, for me and for many other Iranians who grew up in the diaspora, really energizing is to see, you know, w girls giggling and laughing and dancing and throwing off their veil. What pisses me off about the whole veil debate, whether you're anti-Burqa ban in France or you're anti what the Islamic Republic is doing, is in every instance, prescribing what a woman should wear is taking the stance that we need to save women. And what seems to be, and I'm curious if you agree, Goldnish, what it seems like we're watching right now through the images coming out of Iran, the whole young generation saving themselves. Their language isn't about religion. Their language is about economics and freedom and, uh, and just the right to live. Which economic slogans have you heard? I've, I haven't heard people talking about economics. I definitely think that my younger cousins talk constantly about unemployment. I agree. The slogans have not been about- On the street, about, it's not about the yeah, economy, yeah. yeah. No, that's a good point. Women, life, freedom is, is very powerful and to me much more relatable uh, as an American than death to America, death to the dictatorship. Absolutely. Make it I don't want our lasting impression of Iran to be all this talk of the Islamic Republic. So we thought we'd ask you in rapid fire. My first question to you is, where do you get your news from Iran? We've been working on data journalism since 2015, 2016. So I don't have the same reporting model as I did for eight years where we had correspondence inside the country, people coming and going and, you know, staying as much in touch with people in as many different places with as many different backgrounds. For the past at least six years, we've been um, using data journalism to mine data from a country that doesn't really have good data, triangulating the information and mapping the Iranian economy. And in doing that, you get and seeing how these companies and shell companies are related and how they're connected and the families and the clans of the political empires of the Islamic Republic. It gives you a completely different, very interesting picture of Iran, kind of like someone just pulling the veil and everyone will come and say, 
this is what's going on in Iran. This is what happened in Tehran. I'm like, well, we did that story. We did that story. So I haven't heard any stories up until now with the protests of something that we haven't already covered that's kind of been developing, you know. But Generation Z has been a big surprise. I really wasn't expecting that. That's incredible. I think building on the Gen Z point, is there anyone in particular that you feel like we should be following for insights into what's going on in Iran besides Tehran Bureau? No, no one knows because it hasn't been like, I think it caught everyone by surprise, just as the revolution in 78, 79 caught everyone by surprise. So no, I don't know anyone. And if you had to recommend one piece of media, it could be a film, TV show, literature, a channel, what would you recommend to people trying to better understand Iran? Can I do a bit of self-promotion? Of course. That's what we're here for. We've just made a film called Velayat Name. It's a spoof on the Shah Name. It's a sci-fi set in the future of Iran. And it's about mostly like 99% of it is like fictional characters about what Iran looks like, you know, the way it's going. We finished it right before the protest started. And when we had these private screenings in Los Angeles, people like their mouth just like dropped open. They're like, how are you going to get away with releasing this film? Soon afterward, there was like a, sec a second assassination attempt on Masyadi Najad. And then there was like the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And it had a freezing effect. But then when the protests happened, a film that we thought was really kind of way out there we saw that the people in Iran were even ahead of that, you know. So we haven't released the film yet, but I think it does a great job of like capturing, you know, even though it's a spoof, it's satire, it's science fiction, I think it does a great job of explaining the religious, political, financial, environmental corruption that's going on in Iran that happened. and is continuing to happen in Iran every day. That's great. Thank you. We have a survey that we ask every single guest. It's a super rapid fire. And I think Lori's going to kick us off with the cringe fire. Okay. All right, Golnoush, whatever comes first to your mind, go for it. Is there another show that you are binging right now? I just finished Tehran. And what is something in the world that you find super cringy right now? I feel so vindicated with this hijab thing, but before that it was the uh, debate around hijab or the fact that you're not allowed to debate the hijab. Very real. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in culture? That is so another deep-seated thing that makes me very angry. One specific thing I can't right now come up with. Um, okay. Do you have a favorite sex scene or scene depicting sexuality in film, TV, or literature? You know, I, I think when I was younger, I would have probably had a few that I could have said, but it's just, um, I don't like those scenes <laughs> in films anymore. I rarely think, oh, wow, this is great. And What ruined it for you? I think age, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's real. I used to think that there's nothing that couldn't be defined by that when I was younger and everything had to do with that. It's not something I'm interested in. Fair enough. I'd rather not see it. That's a good answer. You are not the only guest of this season alone that has said basically less sex. <laughs> Too less. Exactly. It's completely legitimate. 
Galnoosh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I'm learning so much through your eyes and I appreciate your willingness to be a little bit edgy and, and also super informative and honest with us about this. Yeah, thank you. I'm still so impressed with what you built from nothing. I'm so proud to know you and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to our guest, Golnoosh Nikmajad. Check out her work at TehranBureau.com. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Angram created our original theme song. Amy Klein of AK and the Hallucinations created our theme and ad music. You can find DL on SoundCloud and Amy on Spotify. Don't forget to tell your friends about us and... You can find us anywhere that podcasts are found. Thanks for being here with us. Beyond the digital, behind the